Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In today's episode, Father Streitenberger covers paragraphs 355 to 421, What Does It Mean to Be Human? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! This section of the Catechism deals with fundamental questions, as the last section did as well, about our origins, how we were created, how this world has begun. In particular, this week, as we start in paragraph 325, we're looking at the fundamental questions of what it means to be human and how humans came into existence. Those questions, I think, kind of pair up with each other when we think about the origins of what it means to be human. Um, It automatically teaches us what is at the core of being human, what is our nature. When we look at the beginnings of the world, how God created the world, it points to the very nature of the world. In the Creed, we talk about how God created both that which is invisible and that which is visible, that which is seen and which is unseen. And we see that this, this, this fact, this, this truth which is professed, that God created both what is seen and unseen, what is visible and invisible, reveals to us the nature of the world. And it also reveals to us the nature of what it means to be human. So we begin with this idea that God has created the heaven and the earth, what is invisible and what is visible, what is unseen and what is seen. This expression we hear in paragraph 326 of heaven and earth means a couple things. What that means is, first of all, that God has created all that exists, creation in its entirety. So when we use this, this phrase that God has created the heavens and the earth, it means he's created everything. Number two, it also indicates that there is a deep bond within creation, that the heavens are united to the earth. but that there is a difference between that which is visible and that which is invisible. So on the one hand, this phrase means that heaven and earth are somehow united and connected as part of one creation. It also acknowledges that there is something different between the visible and the invisible. And then finally, especially when we use the phrase heaven, it is a reminder of not just the spiritual creatures, what we will call the angels, but also those who now dwell in the heavens or in heaven with the Lord, namely the saints. In paragraph 327, there is a quote from the Fourth Lateran Council from 1215, which especially dealt with the topic of creation and the angels. 327, we hear this, that from the beginning of time, God made at once, out of nothing, both orders of creatures, the spiritual and the corporeal, that is, the angelic and the earthly, and then the human creature, who, as it were, shares in both orders, being composed of spirit and body. So we're reminded in the Catechism that at the very beginning of creation, when God created the physical world, the visible world, he also created all of the angels. 
So at the very beginning, the very first moment of creation, when the physical world, the visible world is created, the spiritual world is also created. The angelic world is also created. But later, or then, as the quote says, the human creature is created. And we're told that this human be- the human being shares in both orders, both the spirit and the body. So that's why in this section on the visible and the invisible, heaven and earth, that God is the creator of heaven and earth, it fittingly ends with the treatment of what it means to be human. So we have sort of a a, a large structure then for this section. We're going to first look at the invisible heaven, the creation of the angels. We're going to then look at the creation of the visible, the physical world, the universe. And then we're going to look at the creation of the human person. And then to kind of wrap up, we're going to look at the fall of the human race. First by looking at the fall of the angels, and then looking at the fall of the whole human race. And this, this thing that we believe in, which is called original sin. So that will take us to paragraph 412. We're going to cover paragraph 325 to paragraph 412. Paragraph 328 goes into the section on the angels. Now what's interesting um, is everyone is fascinated by angels. Um, the rectory that, um, that I have, I don't live there. Um, it's at Sacred Heart, but my office is there. Um, <clears throat> there are angels or pictures of angels or statues of angels in every single room which kind of drives me a little crazy. You know, it makes me a little awkward. It feels a little awkward that I'm surrounded by all of these images of angels. Some, maybe some priests that lived there at some point collected images of angels. I don't know, but there is in our culture a certain fascination with angels. Um, you know, we, even I think people who are not very religious at all probably have an image of an angel in their room or a depiction of an angel in their house. Certainly people speak often about angels. A fundamental truth which the catechism even doesn't have to deal with because in some ways it's presumed, but it's something that's worth reminding people, is that when we die we do not become angels. Angels are a whole different species of creation, a whole different kind of creation. And in fact, when we die, we remain humans. If we, of course, in this life are still human. Um, but in the next life, we remain human. It would be, in a sense, to say that when one dies, they cease to be human, they become a dog in the afterlife. Angels are a whole different creature. Now, Again, this, our society is very fascinated by angels. I don't know precisely why. But especially when the topic of angels comes up, there's a lot of speculation. People want to know all of the different types of angels. They want to know all about the archangels. They want to know about what angels how angels act, how they look, all of these different things, how many angels there are, all of these, all of these questions. The catechism really kind of has a narrow treatment on angels. It doesn't go too speculative. It just stays with the basic facts. And it's a reminder, the simplicity of the catechism's treatment on angels is a reminder that we don't want to get distracted by angels. That really that is not the focus of our theology or of our spiritual life. 
that it is in, in many ways a distraction. So we keep focused on the angels. In paragraph 328, we're told that there is the existence of the spiritual non-corporeal beings that sacred scripture usually calls angels. The The witness of scripture is as clear as the unanimity of tradition. So if we want a definition of what an angel is, it is the spiritual non-corporeal beings. Spiritual non-corporeal beings. St. Augustine tells us that the name angel, we hear this in paragraph 329, the name angel actually doesn't really tell us anything about their nature. It tells us about their office. The word angel means messenger. They are servants and messengers of God. Throughout the church's history, there have been heresies, especially Gnosticism. We think of Gnosticism, um, but Manichaeism and certain other um, heresies like that will focus on all of these different angels and, and you know, all of these different spiritual beings, mostly because of their cosmology, the way that they view creation, that somehow creation flows from God's very nature, that we, by our existence, you know, are God, um, or at least our share of existence is as God. So the problem is, is this fascination with angels often manifests a problem in one's thinking. Now, I'm not saying that people who have a great devotion to the angels have problems. But when one begins to kind of seek um, more and more secretive and speculative knowledge about angels, it oftentimes can get them into trouble. Again, it is the, the prudence and the wisdom of the catechism. As purely spiritual creatures, we're told in paragraph 330, and I think... Out of all the paragraphs on the angels, this is the most important one, paragraph 330. As purely spiritual creatures, angels have intelligence and will. They are personal and immortal creatures, surpassing in perfection all visible creatures, as the splendor of their glory bears witness. So there's, they're spiritual, purely spiritual, we're told, They have an intelligence, the ability to know, and they have a will, the ability to choose. Now, though the catechism doesn't flesh this out, it is important to kind of take the implications of what that means. Because if we look look at what it means to be human, so for instance, we have an intelligence and a will. How do we exercise that? Well, by our senses, our eye, our sight, our smell, our hearing, and things like that, our feel, our touch, we perceive the world. We sensate the world. We get a sense impression of the world. Because we are bodies, we use our bodies to kind of sense the world. And from that, we learn something. We come to a knowledge. Angels don't have bodies. So their knowledge, their intelligence is exercised immediately. While we kind of have to gradually get more facts and more sense data in order to learn something or to come to knowledge because we have bodies. Angels exercise their intelligence instantaneously because they don't base their knowledge on sense data. In the same way with their will, we as human beings, because we have a body, it takes us time to come to know something, and then it therefore takes us time to choose, and as we come to know more things, as we sense new things and come to new knowledge, we can change our will, change our choice choose something new. 
move back from a choice that we've made. But because angels lack a body and therefore know everything instantaneously, immediately, they know everything they're going to know. And so they choose differently. When they choose, it's definitive. They've got all the facts they ever will have, and they choose. This helps us to understand the fall of the angels, which will be treated later in the Catechism. But that paragraph 330 gives us the basis to understand that section. They are personal and immortal creatures, so there are individual angels. They are immortal, they never die. God has created them. They're not eternal like God is without beginning or end. They are immortal. And as such, they surpass in perfection all visible things. Although, as we're going to hear in the Catechism, something beautiful is that the human person is higher in creation than the angels. The next three paragraphs, 331 through 333, go through Christ's relationship with the angels. And really, it's a summary of Scripture, of how the angels appear throughout sacred Scripture. And then in 334 through 336, the angels' relationship to us, especially in the life of the church. And a couple points. First of all, 335 is a reminder that in the liturgy, we are surrounded by the angels. This is a point which we will cover when we cover the sacraments in about a year or so. Um, But the, the point is, of course that the angels are gathered with us in the worship of the triune God at every Mass and at every liturgy. We remember this with the song, of course, the Gloria at the beginning of Mass, which finds its basis in what the angels sang with the shepherds at the Nativity. And, of course, the Holy, 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 which is this great hymn which is sung by the angels. And then in 336, we are reminded of another truth of the faith, that beside each believer stands an angel as protector and shepherd leading him to life, that each of us has a guardian angel that the Lord assigns to protect us. So that's the the invisible world, the creation of the invisible world. Now the catechism switches to the creation of the visible world. And it first addresses the story in Genesis of the creation of the world in six days. It reminds us that the creator symbolically as a succession of six days of divine works concluded by the rest of the seventh day. On the subject of creation, the sacred text teaches the truths revealed by God for our salvation. So 337 is giving us the key to understand the creation narrative in Genesis of the seven days of the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. Is that that story teaches us those truths revealed by God which are necessary for our salvation. And there are essentially what I would say nine points from that story, those nine truths for our salvation, which the Lord wishes to convey through those, through those, um, those verses in Genesis. The Catechism points out nine of these truths. Nine fundamental points about the creation of the visible world that we can get from the story in Genesis. The first is that nothing exists that does not owe its existence to God the Creator. 
We mentioned last week that God creates ex nihilo. He creates from nothing. That all that exists, exists because God created it. Number two, each creature possesses its own particular goodness and perfection. Throughout that story, the Lord looks upon what he has created and says it is good. It is good. Everything is created with a particular goodness. Everything that exists is good. And it has its own perfection, meaning it has its own nature and its own purpose. Each of the various creatures willed in its own being reflects in its own way a ray of God's infinite wisdom and goodness. Man must therefore respect the particular goodness of every creature to avoid any disordered use of things which would be in contempt of the Creator and would bring disastrous consequences for human beings and their environment. So the fundamental truth is that everything has been created and created for a reason, that we're supposed to marvel and respect that great thing. And this leaves us in, a, in sort of a, a moral response to respect creation and the environment. So here this catechism, which was, of course, really brought together by Cardinal Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, that it was called for by John Paul II, that it really is an outgrowth of the Second Vatican Council, that this catechism acknowledges the need to respect the environment. So there's already, even and as it's, it's commenting upon the first chapters of Genesis, there is this, what we might call an environmental sensitivity that is a part of the tradition lest we think that this has just been something created in the last few years. Number three, God wills the interdependence of creatures. That creatures exist only in dependence on each other, to complete each other in the service of each other. That there is an interdependence in creation. Which points, of course, to our interdependence as human beings. But it's in a larger, a larger scale. Number four, the beauty of the universe. That there is an order and harmony that is created in the world. That there's something beautiful about it. I mean, I don't think anyone, you know, this should not be news to anyone that the world is beautiful. Number five, the hierarchy of creatures is expressed by the order of the six days, from the less perfect to the more perfect. So there is a hierarchy, even though there's this interdependence, and even though every creature is unique and has its own perfection, nonetheless there is also a hierarchy in creation, just as there's a hierarchy in truths. And, of course, the apex, this is the sixth point, man is the summit of the Creator's work. But lest we um, get conceited, which we often do, number seven, there is a solidarity among all creatures arising from the fact that all have the same Creator and all are ordered to His glory. It is a reminder that even though the human person is the apex, the summit of creation, he is responsible for all of creation. We use the word dominion, which is true, a governance, but of course in the Christian model that governance is also a service. And so we respect the solidarity. There's a certain solidarity that we have with everything else that is created. And just because we are the apex um, does not mean that we have this sort of 
um, disrespectful overlordship over everything. Number eight, which is in paragraph 345, if you're going through the catechism, those verses in Genesis of the creation narrative remind us also that the Sabbath is built into creation. That the Lord himself rested. Paragraph 346 through 348 talks about the importance of the Sabbath and the Sabbath rest throughout history um, and what it reveals about God. Paragraph 349 is a ninth point that we take from the Genesis creation narrative um, in six days. And that is that there is an eighth day. An eighth day. The seventh day is the Sabbath rest. But for us, a new day has dawned, the day of Christ's resurrection. The seventh day completes the first creation. The eighth day begins the new creation. In some sense, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of creation, the eighth day. That God has created the world and taken his rest, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is a new creation that arises, or that the old creation is elevated, just as our human nature is elevated by Christ's resurrection. The Catechism then goes on into the, para- uh, the section on man, on the human person, which could be subdivided into four parts. First of all, that the human person is in the image of God. Second, that, the, that by his very nature, the human person unites the spiritual and material worlds. Number three, that the human person is created male and female. And fourth, that God established the human person in his friendship, something which we call original justice. All of those, I think, um, those four sections are an expression of this fundamental truth about what it means to be human, and that is that we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. Paragraph 356, of all the visible creatures, only man is able to know and love his creator. He is the only creature on earth that God has willed for his own sake, and he alone is called to share by knowledge and love in God's own life. It was for this end that he was created, and this is the fundamental reason for his dignity. So four points from that paragraph, which are really, I think, crucial for us. The first three is, why is it that the human person is so important? Why is it that the human person is so important? Or how is it that the human person shares in the image of God? First of all, we are able to know and love the Creator. We're able to know and love the Creator. We have access by our reason and our will to actually have a relationship the divine person, with the one who has created us. With that, then, we see what is unique about the human person, which is the ability to know our reason, our rationality, and our ability to love, which deals with our volition, our freedom, our will. So as we've heard throughout, we heard it in the section on faith. We've heard it a couple times when we, when we talked about the Trinity. One of the things that's unique about the human race, two things that are unique about the human person, is our reason, homo sapien sapien, the wise 
the wise man, the man who is able to know, and then our ability to love, to act on our will. Number two, he is the only creature on earth that God has willed for his own sake. So the rest of creation, although it has this dignity and this value, is here to support the human race. Number three, the human person alone is called to share by knowledge and love in God's own life. So there are some things in creation that have a reason and a will, namely angels. But we're actually called to enter into God's own life. Not just friendship with some distant God who created us, but to be inserted into the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To share as sons and daughters in the relationship that the Son has with the Father. And then the other point is this concept of dignity. which is, I think, one of the fundamental principles of the catechism. And in fact, um, the section on morals, the morality section, which is, I think, part three, um, can really be explained and summarized by this concept of dignity that the human person has this fundamental dignity based on who they are. Now, everything has its own dignity based on what it is, based on its nature, based on its perfection, as the Catechism would say. In paragraph 357, being in the image of God, the human individual possesses the dignity of a person who is not just something, but someone. Now, that's, that's a good line. Maybe that's something to put on your mirror in the morning or something like that. That we're not just something, but someone. That we're a person. Um, God created everything for men, but man, in turn, was created to serve and love God and to offer all of creation back to him. So it's another way of we want to uphold the sort of solidarity of creation and balance that with the unique kind of hierarchy in which the human person is at the peak. That God has given everything to the human person so that the human person might give it all back to God. This sort of, um, which we saw that in the, the Trinity, that movement of exiting and returning, of giving and returning, giving and returning. So there is this idea then that the human person is in the image of God and that this is the root of our dignity. We might say, based on what we've seen thus far, that being in the image of God entails knowing and loving or having a reason and will, that that's part of how we are in the image of God, that we are also in the image of God um, because we have been, in a sense, we have this unique relationship with him, that we are called to enter into his own life, the divine life. We're created for our own sake in order to enter into his own life. But I would expand this concept of the image of God to include 
And this isn't just me, by the way. I mean, the catechism kind of lends this. That the image of God, that the human person being in the image of God contains these other three sections on the human person. So the second section is that we are a body and soul. That the human person consists of a body and soul. Now we might say, how does that make us in the image of God? God has no body as in no physical body. Well, paragraph 362 explains it for us. The human person created in the image of God is a being at once corporeal and spiritual. So he's in the image of God, he's in the image of God, but he nonetheless is corporeal and spiritual. Well, it's because he unites both realms. So God, in some sense, unites the visible and the invisible because he created both. The human person, being in the image of God, unites the visible and the invisible because the human person is both visible and invisible, has both a physical body and a spiritual soul. 363 defines for us what a soul is. That a soul often refers to human life or the entire human body. But soul, and this is what we most especially mean in this context, the soul refers to the innermost aspect of man, that which is of greatest value in him, that by which he is most especially in God's image. Soul signifies the spiritual principle in man. The soul is the spiritual principle in man. Three sixty four, the human body shares in the dignity of the image of God. It is a human body precisely because it is animated by a spiritual soul. So we have a soul and we have a body, both of them somehow share in the image of God. And paragraph 365 tells us that the soul and the body are inseparable in, some, in, in a sense. The unity of the soul and the body is so profound that one has to, be, has to consider the soul to be the form of the body i.e., it is because of its spiritual soul that the body made of matter becomes a living human body. Spirit and matter in man are not two natures united, but rather their union forms a single nature. To be human is to have a body and a soul. This is why death is so bad, is that death separates body and soul. To be human is to have a body and a soul that are united. We might ask, well, how does the soul come into existence? Well, paragraph 366 answers this. Every spiritual soul is created immediately by God. It is not produced by the parents, And also that it is immortal. It does not perish when it separates from the body at death and will be reunited with the body at the final resurrection. We would say that the soul is immediately created at the creation of the body. When is the body created? At conception. So man and woman come together in the marital act And they, as secondary causes, create the body of their child. Contributing their DNA, they create something new and unique, this body. And God creates a soul as the body is created. In 367, we're told about the spirit. Sometimes we say that a human person consists of a body 
a soul and a spirit. St. Paul often, often uses this. Now, when we hear the phrase that man is created in the image of God, if we know Genesis, we should immediately think something is missing. This idea of image and likeness, that man is created in God's image and likeness. So the catechism uses this spirit not as a synonym for soul, it's something else. Something else. Um, The spirit signifies that from creation. Man is ordered to a supernatural end that his soul can gratuitously be raised beyond all it deserves to communion with God. The spirit is, we might say, um, some sort of super share in the supernatural life or grace. After the fall, we say that the image, our share in the image of God is damaged, but we lose the likeness. That in some ways we lose this supernatural grace that God gave us as um, before the fall. So that's what the Spirit indicates, the Catechism says, is this this sort of share in the supernatural. I think it, it matches with the idea of likeness. And then in 368, we're also, oftentimes we use the word heart to describe what it, a part of the human person. As the depth of one's being, where the person decides for or against God. Now, we also, the catechism moves to its next section. In some way, perhaps more difficult for us to understand, is that we share in the image of God in that God has created the human person male and female. This is something which is essential to being human, that we are created male or female. We are um, engendered at the moment of conception, that it is a part of our our share in human nature. The catechism, relying especially on the Genesis um, story of the creation of Adam and Eve, points out multiple truths about um, the human person as male and female. Man and woman have been created, which is to say willed by God. On the one hand, in perfect equality as human persons, on the other in their respective beings as man and woman. So they are both equally human, but there is something unique about each. Masculinity, authentic masculinity, authentic femininity. Being man or being woman is a reality which is good and willed by God. In their being man and being woman, they reflect the Creator's wisdom and goodness. So part of being human is to be either male or to be either female. And that this is a way to share in the image of God. But the problem that we, we might have is addressed or at least brought up in paragraph 370. In no way is God in man's image. He is neither man nor woman. God is not engendered. God is pure spirit in which there is no place for the difference between the sexes. But the respective perfections of man and woman reflect something of the infinite perfection of God, those of a mother and those of a father and husband. So the Catechism reminds us that you know, God is not engendered, both in his oneness and, we might add, even in the three persons, 
The Father is, has revealed himself as Father. The Son has revealed himself as Son. Those are the names that he has given us, but of course, not until the incarnation when the Son actually takes on a human body and soul is he engendered. But the other two persons, Father and Holy Spirit, never take on a human body and therefore are never engendered. So how can we say then that the human person, as either male or female, as engendered, share in the image of God? Well, the Catechism says that the respective perfections, authentic masculinity, authentic femininity, being man, being woman, maleness, femaleness, whatever is at the core of being a male or whatever is at the core of being a female, that these perfections are somehow an image of God's nature. And so if we are on our own kind of quest to figure out what does it mean to be authentically male or what does it mean to be authentically female, we have to look to God to find the source of that, to find that identity. Now, I propose, as the Catechism says, that these perfections of maleness or femaleness, masculinity or femininity, reflect something of the infinite perfection of God, those of a mother and those of a father and husband. So when we talk about God as a mother or as a father, it is, of course, in his oneness. As we, if you recall, when we talked about that in his oneness, those images could be used as God as mother, God as a loving parent, God as a loving father, God as a husband, a pursuer of souls. Of course, we have the identity of the Father and the Son within the Trinity, too. So it might also, what it means to be authentically male or authentically female, may be seen in the Trinity itself, but that might go too far. Where can we find these perfections of God that might be the root of authentic maleness or authentic femaleness? I think it is ultimately in God's role in creation. And I I would also point that that's, I think, where we will discover in the act of creation that which is authentic about male, the, the perfection of maleness, and the perfection of femaleness. But I might propose it is God's giving of himself, his exitus, which is seen in his oneness by the act of creation in which he pours out creation, and then also seen in the Trinity where the Father pours out himself in the gift of his Son, he begets the Son, and that together the Father and the Son um, push forth the Spirit. And then there is this return in creation in which the Holy Spirit uniting all things to the Son unites it to the Father. There is a giving and a receiving, a giving and a receiving um, in the very act of creation. God gives himself and creation returns to God. The Father pours out himself and the Son and the Spirit give themselves back, a giving and a receiving. That may be at the heart of how the perfection of maleness 
and the perfection of femaleness share in the image of God. The rest of this section on um, gender deal with how God created man and woman together to fulfill each other and for each other. Then we are proposed this section on original justice. And this is part of being in the image and likeness of God, that at the very beginning, God made us, we call it OJ, original justice, the original OJ, um, original justice. So God has created us in this image and likeness, and we live that image and likeness, we live that image and likeness in this state, in this relationship called original justice, which was marked by harmony, by harmony, a state of holiness and justice. This harmony was a relationship with God. We see that in Genesis that Adam walked with God in the garden. They walked together. There was this original friendship. With that original justice, so in a right relationship with God himself, there were these other harmonies. So the human person was in harmony with himself. His senses didn't fail. So his reason got reliable data. When his reason um, came to a truth, the will acted on it. It wasn't weak. And the emotions backed that up. The emotions weren't all awry. The passions weren't all awry. So there was this sort of harmony within ourselves. Number two, there was a harmony in the human race. There was no discord. Number three, there was a harmony between the genders, between male and female. They saw themselves as complementary and as fulfilling each other. And then number four, there was harmony with the rest of creation. So we did not experience pain or suffering. And with that, we might also add... Um, that um, we did not experience death as this separation of body and soul. Then comes the fall, and that's paragraph 385 on. Um, The fall, just like the problem of evil that we dealt with last week, Um, is a fundamental issue that we all have to deal with and which the faith has to address for us. Um, You know, before we saw that um, there is this idea of primary causality, that God directly does things, and then there are secondary causality in which the things that God has created kind of have their own way of causing things. And that from that secondary causality, there can be moral evil, so something in creation freely chooses to do something evil. Or there can be physical evil by the nature of a secondary causality, say like tectonic plates, we experience some sort of physical evil, i.e. an earthquake. The problem of the fall, the fall of the human race, and the fall of the angels is a crucial part of explaining, explaining the problem of evil and suffering in the world. We have to be real about sin, that sin is present in the human race, in human history, and that it cannot be ignored, and that it is crucial for us to understand our relationship with God. 
when we talked about relation or with revelation, we saw that there's a change in the process of revelation after the fall. That now it's not just about communicating information, it's about restoring damage too. And so we can't get fuzzy about sin. And paragraph 387 kind of calls out some of these fuzzy things about sin that we might call it a developmental flaw or a psychological weakness or a mistake or a necessary consequence of some inadequate social structure. The angels fall, we're told, first of all, this, this idea of original sin, that there is, at the very beginning of the human race, something happens, something breaks in their relationship with God. The doctrine of original sin is, so to speak, the reverse side of the good news. Then we're given some lessons on how to read the section on the fall. Primarily is that it's some sort of primeval event that happens at the very beginning of human history committed by our first parents, an original fault that was freely committed. Now we hear that the angels, that there are fallen angels, Satan or the devil, that these angels fell and that they, by their own free choice, radically and irrevocably rejected God and his reign. Radically and irrevocably. Because of the nature of angels and their free choice, once they make a choice, because they know everything that they will ever know the rest of their life, they can't repent of that choice. So at the moment of their creation, an angel chooses or opts for God or to reject God. And they can't repent. It's not a defect in infinite mercy, in God's infinite mercy, that angels can't repent. It's just the nature of how they make decisions. We must always be reminded that the power of Satan is nonetheless not infinite. It's not like, you know, oh, Satan might win. He's definitely going to lose, and he's lost. God, nonetheless, permits the secondary cause of Satan and the fallen angels to affect creation and to affect especially us in our lives so that he might bring an infinite good out of that. Original sin, um, a couple points on it. The um, First of all, we believe that the first parents, the first human beings, disobeyed God's command. That is what man's first sin consisted of. All subsequent sin would be disobedience toward God and lack of trust in his goodness. So the human being in this friendship with God was made to submit himself to God. By eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man is refusing to submit to God. This this act is not just a rejection of God, but it's also a turning into himself, which really marks all sin, that Sin is a turning away from God and a turning into ourselves. And it leads to four disharmonies. Five, if you want to count the most important, which is that this sin has broken the first human and therefore all other humans' relationship with God. Although we retain our image of God... It has, or being in the image of God, we're still humans, 
nonetheless were damaged. Our passions are unruly, our senses fail. There is this disharmony within ourselves individually. Number two, there is disharmony between man and woman. We see that they blame each other in the garden. There is disharmony in the human race. We're going to see that especially in Cain and Abel. There is a disharmony in creature with the rest of creation in that the secondary causality of things like water or tectonic plates or animals or bacteria, now we experience that as not the normal way in which creation works, but as a cause of suffering and pain. And ultimately, the greatest disharmony is that is death, where our body and our souls will be separated. This sin is universal. All men are implicated in Adam's sin because we are descendants of Adam. Paragraph 403 on... Um, give us sort of the points about this. So first of all, we might say that the whole human race is in Adam, in the first parents, that we were there in, in potency, in potential, that he is the head of the human race and therefore the first parents as head of the human race. When they make a decision, it impacts all of us. But also, as the first parents, they're the inventors, we might say, the shapers of what it means to be human, of human nature. So even though it's a personal sin for Adam and Eve, we inherit this state of sin, this fallen state. Original sin, therefore, is called a sin in an analogical sense. It is a sin contracted and not committed. It is a state and not an act. So the little baby has original sin even though they didn't make any personal choices. It's the state. I'm going to end here and then, um, well... Yeah, we're going to end here and then kind of, well, no, let's just push through. Um, Just a few little minutes. Well, there's just a couple little points that we want to make. First of all, um, the um, original sin does not have the character of a personal fault, as we said. Um, And it has affected the way that we are, especially this concept of concupiscence. So first, we want to say that we have not lost the fact that we are in the image of God by the fall. This is a crucial thing because it has damaged us, but it has not destroyed us. We still have this dignity, and we still are humans. Some might say that we've lost our reason and our will because of the fall. We've lost our freedom and our ability to know the truth. But then that would mean that we're no longer human, that we have absolutely no dignity at all. This is to go too far. Our human nature is wounded in the natural powers proper to it, subject to ignorance, suffering, and the dominion of death, and we are inclined to sin. But not all that we do is automatically sin. There is this concupiscence. We're inclined to sin. We're disposed to sin. We are weak, but we still remain human. But that is not to say that we can do it by our own effort or by our own power, somehow redeem ourselves or be freed from sin, which would be what we call Pelagianism. Even though the fall stinks and we have all been affected by it, there is nonetheless hope. And even though it appears as if Satan dominates 
us and dominates the world. Even at the very beginning in Genesis, there is what is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the promise that there would be a redeemer, a messiah who would crush the head of the serpent, who would be born of the woman, ultimately pointing to Christ and to Our Lady. And the catechism closes as we close with a great reminder that from the fall we are actually elevated higher. We are drawn in closer into divine life than we were before the fall. We become something even more than original justice through Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.